If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are so grateful and thankful that we get to gather here together as your children. We thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that because of that, we have a certain and a sure future. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who hears our prayers and answers our prayers. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us a great deal of truth that is helpful to us as we live life and as we deal with the various issues of life and, at times, the complications of life. We thank you, Lord, that you are a source of comfort. We thank you also, Lord, for the great joy and happiness that you give to us. And Father, we ask now that as we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, we ask that you bless our time in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us understanding. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now I'll begin reading in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. But what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there was more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. As Solomon writes these words and talks about his observations, again comparing living a life in wisdom, seeking to be wise in what you do, and then how the fool lives, he notices that the same event happens to both. And the event he's talking about here is death. Someone once said that foolishness does not kill a man twice. Nor does worldly wisdom redeem the mortal philosopher from perishing along with the fool. And that is what Solomon, that's the conclusion he's coming to. Verse 13, when he says, Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The term darkness here, I believe, kind of conjures up in our mind the idea of evil, both in the sense of disobedience to God and a lack of knowing how to live successfully. So the wise, by comparison, they're able to see their way around in life, while the fools grope about in the darkness of ignorance. When he says in verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, that's what he's talking about. So Solomon can clearly see that wisdom is better than foolishness or folly. But then he asks this question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if both the fool 
and the wise person end with the same fate, death. If death is the end, and both wise and fool end up there, what difference does it make how one lives? And many individuals have wrestled with that question. I think the ones who have the most difficult issue with that question are those who do not think about God. If, if God is not in the equation, if God is not in your thoughts, and we're left with just what we have here, all we have is what we know about life now, then I do believe that will always logically lead to a form of nihilism. Basically, that it just doesn't matter, that everything is senseless, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and so it just doesn't matter how you live. And I guess you would say, philosophically speaking, that would be true. That would be true. Without the resurrection, religion, I would say in particular Christianity, provides no escape from the pain or the absurdities of existence. So what Solomon is observing here, remember that this is not some kind of an exaggeration and that he's only seeing things in a negative way. He is seeing reality as it is. When we look at the world, in the world there is a great deal of pain. We know that there's a great deal of pain. We have experienced pain, not just, again, pain that you might experience yourself in the sense that you are injured or that you are sick. <coughs> but beyond that, you know, we talk about those we love that die. We talk about the abuses that take place in the world. The injustices that we see. The thing I share with you, there was a book that I read on justice. I think it has something to do with the eating of the locusts or something like that was the name of the book. And in the book, he begins with a story. The first hundred pages are really, I think, in a sense, very devastating. If your view of the world is pretty much only how you understand that things go in America. And he starts with a story that takes place in South America where there is a, a a party that's taking place. There's a very, very wealthy uh, Hispanic man uh, who's very well connected who throws this party. And he has several uh, poor people who do work for him. And, and in the story, and this is a, a true story, uh, one of the, I guess you call them the servants, or one of the individuals that he hires, uh, their young daughter, who's I think 10 or 11, is uh, basically taken uh, to a room there on this large property in a large house. And, and she's raped and uh, she's murdered. And they, they can't find her, but there's this mattress in this room that's just saturated with blood. And so the police come. And what the author is getting at is that when the police come, it's not like how when our police come. It's very different. The police come and they interview several people and they collect no evidence. They, they do nothing and they leave. Well, obviously the family is very distraught about this. And so they, they complain and they are able to call somebody in what we might call the, the DA's office or the prosecutor's office. And so uh, they, they come back a few weeks later and they take the mattress that's still there and they do collect some evidence. And a couple of years goes by. And so they, again, inquire, why is there no one being investigated? Why is, why, why is there no justice? What's, what's taking place? And so after bugging these individuals for a while, finally an arrest is made. 
and this individual is charged with the events that took place that evening. So when they have the initial hearing, and I'm not sure of the exact order of how they do their court system because it's not quite like ours, but when they do one of the initial hearings, they bring the mattress. The mattress has been cut up. There's a huge hole in the mattress. No one knows what happens, what has happened to them. I mean, it's clear someone cut out the large blood stain, but it's not there. And so the judge, he doesn't say it this way, but basically the end result is, oh well, there's nothing we can do. And what he brings out in this story is that the story is repeated hundreds of times every day throughout the world. And what they find out that took place, as this guy's writing this book and they're doing all these various investigations, is if you have the money, and the police came that night, they were given some money, and so they talked to a few, few people and left. A few years later, when there was an arrest made, they were given some money when they collected evidence, and the evidence just began to disappear. So there's no justice, not the kind of justice that we are accustomed to here in this country. And so when we see that type of thing, it's maddening. But imagine being in the situation where there is no recourse. For that family that's lost, there is, there's nothing. There's, there's no one to talk to. There's no one to complain to. Nothing is going, nothing is going to be done. And imagine, imagine living in a place where that is the norm. It's, it's difficult even to imagine that because we are so accustomed to, well, of course this is going to happen. Well, of course that's going to happen. This is what Solomon is, is seeing, is the pain and the absurdities of existence. Let me remind you that when all this is going on, Solomon is, in a sense, as he said, he's cheering himself up with wine. He is embracing folly, but he says that he doesn't abandon his senses. He knows what he is doing, and he is thinking all the while this is going on while he's giving himself over to wine and he's, he's seeing all these absurdities. He's evaluating things all along the way. He now realizes that living wisely will not stop him from being placed in a box in the ground just like the village idiot. We have returned in chapter 2 already, maybe immediately to chapter 1, to the agony that he describes. Let me read to you a couple of verses from chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. In verses 3 and 4, he says, What does a man gain for all of his efforts? He labors at under the sun. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 9, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And verse 11, There is no memory of those who, come be- who came before, and of those who will come after. There will also be no memory of them among those who follow them. In other words, it is the people who follow us who will have control over our toil and our effort. Perhaps they would develop the things that we were developing. Perhaps they would destroy it. But either way, we will be dead and gone and soon forgotten. And so what does that mean for all we have achieved? If there is no gain, why bother with anything? And again, that's what he is struggling with. Why are we trying so hard to do all of these, I guess you would say, these good things these memorable things, when in the end, I'm going to die, I will be forgotten, and I will have no control over these things. I think being forgotten bothers him the most. It's because it's almost as if that person didn't exist. 
That sounds fairly bleak. Maybe it sounds too bleak and pessimistic. If it sounds that way to you, it may mean that you haven't reflected at length on the brevity of life. If you haven't wondered why it matters what you do, given that one day you will be a forgotten nobody, then you haven't thought much about the reality of death. Of course, who wants to think about the fact that we are going to die, let alone actually prepare for it in a deliberate way? Blaise Pascal said this, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them at all, so as to become happy. If we refuse to think about these things, in fact, we do refuse to think about these things, and we do so by filling our lives with other things. Blaise Pascal went on and he said this, The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Nothing is so unbearable for a man as to be in complete repose, without passions, without business, without distraction, without, without application. Then he feels his nothingness, his abandonment, his insufficiency, his dependence, his impotence, his emptiness. From the depths of his soul there will arise boredom, melancholy, sadness, sorrow, spite, despair. There's been a few scientific studies done on, I guess, our view of being alone. The conclusions of several of them is people have literally said this. I would rather receive electroshock than to be alone for 15 minutes. Now, some have tried to make a distinction. And they draw the difference between being lonely and being alone. And there is a difference. And I do think that no one wants to be lonely. But I think that what these individuals want to emphasize is that we're not talking about being lonely. We're about being alone. And, and we can't stand being alone. We don't want to be alone with our own thoughts. Especially if you get into these things that Blaze talks about when you begin to think about your own existence. Now I will say that at times being alone is extremely beneficial. More than once I have come across men in jail who have told me that when they got arrested and they've been processed and they're put in a jail cell where there's, there's, you know, there's no phone, there's no TV, there's no radio, no CD player, there's nothing, and in the beginning they're in a cell by themselves and you are left with your own thoughts, that for many of them, they said that was the first time that they had, that they could ever remember, that they thought about the way they were living life. And for some... It bothered them a great deal to where they began to think about God and their existence and all those types of things. And so that can be very, very helpful. For many, they don't want to go in that direction because when you begin to think about who we really are and you think about life and death, it can be kind of depressing, especially if you don't know the Lord, and it can lead us to all kinds of things. And it can definitely lead us to despair and despondency. It seems, though, that when you look at human beings that we were made, or mankind was made for thinking. Some have said that that is where our dignity lies as being. Our merit, our whole duty is that we are to think as we ought to. And there was not just certain things that we should think about, but that we should spend time thinking. The order of thought is to begin with ourselves and with our creator and with our end. What does the world think about? Well, never about that. 
The world thinks about dancing, playing the guitar, writing songs, poems, playing on their phone, looking at the latest YouTube video, whatever it happens to be. Maybe becoming rich, maybe becoming king, maybe becoming the president without thinking what it even means to be the king or to be president or even just a man. And so Koheleth, or Solomon here, feels this anguish about what he is seeing and what he's contemplating. We need to ask ourselves the question, have we ever experienced, I guess you would call it the angst that he is experiencing? Again, if not, we should ask ourselves, is it because you have given yourself wholesale to a repertoire of diversions that distract you from addressing the ultimate questions about your mortality? I do think that it's important for all of us to think about this a little bit. I do think, even for the believer, it should bother us. No one wants to die. When I think about death, and I'm grateful that heaven awaits me, I'm not in a hurry to get there. I do want to get there. But I think God has created us with this desire to want to live. Life is precious. I want life to go on and on and on. I don't want it to end. I know that I'm going to be with the Lord one day and life will be that way and there will be no end. It's difficult to imagine that because all I know is this. I like this. With all of its troubles, I like this. I just, I trust God completely so I'm okay that I don't know by experience what lies beyond the grave. I'm good with that. Because I trust what the Lord says. But again, there's not this idea somehow that we are in a hurry to die. And it doesn't mean, and this is important, it doesn't mean that when you think about your own death, that there's not a little bit of apprehension. That would be normal. Just so I want you to understand that, because that, you know, maybe you may have heard someone say, well, when I think about my dying, I don't give it another thought. It doesn't bother me at all. Well, it doesn't really bother me in a sense, but there's still that apprehension. And it's not about how am I going to die. There's a lot of ways I guess we could die, and I would like to have a list of how I don't want to die. You know, there would, there would be that. But that's not, all, that's not what I'm talking about, even when we have that sense of apprehension. So I, I don't want you to think for a moment that when we talk about these things, that if you feel apprehension, that somehow that means that your faith is weak. Now, your faith may be weak, but, it is, but that alone does not necessarily mean that. So I just want you to, to, to realize that. So Because sometimes people will avoid that because they have that sense or that feeling. And so I don't want you to shy away from that because you have that sense. And I don't want you to somebody to think that it somehow means something negative about you as a believer. Now, at the same time, don't just assume that if you have that sense of apprehension, that it means nothing because it might. It might. For some, maybe it's a little deeper. Maybe it lasts a little longer because there is a great sense of uncertainty about maybe where you are going to be, about what's going to happen when you die. In the days of Blaise Pascal, when, it, when he talked about the diversions that people would give themselves to, it consisted of hunting and games and gambling. Today we are submerged beneath an abundance of trivia, 
Uh, you know, we live in a fully wired culture. We're always connected, completely digitized world of social media and limitless sources of entertainment. And again, some of those things or some of our response to those things, maybe for many people, is we can't stand to have nothing going on. It, it, it bothers us for a lot of different reasons, and we do need to think about that. But it is true that we do live in a death-denying culture. And now we're blessed. We, you know, we don't have people literally dying on the streets every day. If you were to live, for example, in India, that would be very common wherever you lived. If you're walking or driving to see people dying and to see dead bodies lying in the street every day. We don't have that in our culture. We, there's, I don't want to say that, that there's a sense of dignity here because I think there's a lot more that goes to do it than just a sense of dignity and it has to do with the, the richness of our country and those types of things. And so that's not a bad thing. But what we have tended to do is uh, we live in a society that, that tries to kind of, I guess, shelter us or keep us from dealing with the issue or even seeing it. I have noticed this through the years that it is fairly common now to meet young people who've never been to a funeral, ever. They've never seen a dead body. I do think it's important as parents that you take your kids to funerals. They need you to talk to them about death. You need to help them understand life and death before they get, become young adults. I'm not saying you have to take them to every single funeral that you go to, but I do think it's important. I remember when I took my, uh, one of my grandchildren once to a viewing because uh, he was with me, and I think Cindy was doing something, and so he had to come, which I was fine with, and I, we went, and I, we walked right up to the casket, and I picked him up so he could look in so we could talk about it. We should think this way. I, when I, I use this term carefully, but I do think that, that there's a degree of selfishness that's okay. And what I mean by that is this. Death is such an important subject. I want to be the ones to talk to my kids about it. I want to be the ones to talk to my grandkids about it. I don't want to leave it to others. I want to be the one who informs them. I want to be the one because I want to make sure that they hear the truth. I want to make sure they hear everything about it. I want to be the one so that if, they, if, it, if, if it creates fear, to be able to comfort them. I want to be that individual. Because if we are not that individual, who else is going to do it with as much care and concern as you have for your child or your grandchild? They might be a little colder. They might not give the answers that are accurate. And, and, we want, and there's a whole lot of things that come out of that that I think is important. That's how our kids mature. That's how they grow. And we should want to be a part of that in their lives. And too often as Christians, we just, maybe without thinking, just blindly follow along with what our society does. And so kids don't go to funerals, people don't bring their kids to funerals, and we don't bring our kids to funerals. And we need to think about it differently. And you'd be amazed at the people that you meet who might say to you, I can't believe that you brought your kids. Just remember, they're the ones that are thinking kind of weird. Death's a part of life. Do we really want our kids growing up thinking somehow that death is not a thing? Death is a thing. And we need to help them to deal with that. 
Now, again, in and of themselves, the iPhone, all these things we do for entertainment, in and of themselves, they're not evil. It's not wrong to use them. So I'm not saying that you need to you know, take your kid's thing and throw it away. Uh, but it is important to ask yourself this. Can you cope with looking death in the eye? It's not just something that older people do. Everybody needs to be able to do that. The reality is that if death doesn't inform the way you live, then death is something you are pretending doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that you're morbid and you think every day, I'm going to die soon. But death should still inform the way that we live our lives. At times, individuals will have what's been called an existential crisis. All that simply is is this. It is a moment at which an individual questions the very foundations of their life. That can be really, really valuable. We want people to go through that. It's important that we go through that, that we question the very foundation of our lives, whether life has any meaning, whether life in particular, does my life have any purpose? Does my life have any value? This existential crisis that people go through is commonly tied with depression and or a feeling of a lack of purpose in life. It is the thoughts that one day I will be forgotten. So what is the point of all my work? Or what is the point of my life? What is the point of even trying to do good? Individuals go through this at different times in life, depending on various circumstances that might cause them to go there. But I think it's a good place for people to go. It's something that we need to talk about. I don't think it's healthy just to leave an individual by themselves, especially if they have no knowledge of God. This issue of the meaning and the purpose of existence is the focus of the philosophical study of ontology. An existential crisis is often provoked by a very significant event in the person's life, whether it's psychological trauma, marriage, separation, divorce, a major loss, the death of a loved one, a life-threatening experience, maybe a new love interest, uh, maybe some kind of psychoactive drug use, uh, adult children leaving home, uh, uh, reaching a, a, a personally significant age, you know, like, you know, we make a big deal when someone turns 16, or it's a big deal when you turn 40, or a big deal when you turn 60. You know, we, we, all, we sometimes laugh about it. You know, the person turns 40, and we throw a party with black balloons uh, as if it's a funeral. I'll never forget um, when I was, uh, early on, when I was uh, a lot more active at Calvary, the school, because all my kids were there, and coaching and various things, this one class, I think it was middle school kids, I'm not sure what prompted this. I think it was because I was also a chaplain at the jail and we were involved in doing things together. But they made some birthday cards for me. Uh, and it was terrific. Uh, and there's one card. I only remember one card. Uh, and it was uh, very uh, interesting. You know, it was, on the, it was brightly colored, you know, you know, happy birthday and all this stuff. And I opened it up and there was, there was a hill. And on one side of the hill, it was green and lush, and I guess it was fruit trees. And I'm standing on the top of the hill, and I'm looking the other way. The other side, it was all brown and dead trees, like there had been this massive uh, fire. And everything on that side of the page was just, it was all dead. <laughs> and the person said, you're just about over the hill. <laughs> I'm like, so is this hill life? Is that how they view what life is like when you get over the hill? It's all death and, you know, it was just, it was hilarious. I was just cracking up uh, when I saw that. I actually kept it for many, many years and uh, would show it around. I just thought it was fabulous. 
because uh, they kind of gave that individual's uh, view of things. But that is how you know, people sometimes go through this existential crisis when that happens. I think for some men, because they usually talk about men doing this, even though I guess it's not limited to that, you know the whole midlife crisis thing? Just so now, I do believe this with all my heart, that the midlife crisis we're talking about is just made up. Tons of men never go through that. But there are those who do. And they talk about, you know, the, the guy turns 50 and all of a sudden he's driving a Corvette uh, and uh, he's suddenly wearing way too much cologne and he's unbuttoning his shirt and he's got the gold chain and just, you know, whatever happens to be, whatever they're doing, uh, you know, maybe trying to be hip. I don't know, whatever that is. I don't even know if that's even a proper term anymore. I don't think we're trying to be hip, but whatever it is. You know, we say, oh, well, you know, someone, someone's had a midlife crisis. Well, knowing what that means is that individual is questioning their life there's a fear that life is over. They're holding on to their past. I mean, this goes on and on. I do think that most Christian men really don't experience that. Now, I do think that there may be those times where we think about life, and I think that's great, where we think about, I mean, what have I really accomplished? Now, if you think about it like the world, a lot of us aren't going to have a whole lot to answer with that. You know, what have I accomplished? Oh, I don't have any big buildings. There's no buildings with my name on it. We go through all those things, and most of us probably need to go buy the Corvette because there's just nothing there. But when it comes to what we understand as Christians, we need to think about it a lot differently. Think about the people that we care about, people that we've influenced. You know, the world shrinks at that moment, and we realize that if, if that doesn't matter, then life is just absurd. And it matters, it matters a great deal. The people that we love and care for, the people that we've influenced, it matters to them that we've been in their life. And it matters to us that they've been in our life. God has created the world for, I, for that. Part of our existence is that and how we relate to people. Usually when an individual goes through this existential crisis, it provokes the one who's suffering. They, they get into a lot of introspection. So I'm not really a big fan of morbid introspection, but I'm a big fan of, of evaluating our lives. They begin to think about their own mortality because life is short. Uh, I'm going to be 60 soon. I am very much aware that um, my life is, I mean, my days are numbered. I mean, my days were numbered when I was 20, but that number is a lot smaller now. <laughs> now, I don't know when I'm going to die. You know, I look at my parents. They're both 80 and in good health. That's great, but that means I only got 20 years left if I live that long. Every time I read about somebody dying and they're like 74, that's 14 years. That's not a lot of time. You know, that seems really short. I, th I think it is. And, and so we think about that. Now, I, I don't become depressed with that. Some do. But again, we need to think about those things. And I think it's, we, it's very important for us to talk to our husbands, our wives, our friends, our, friend, our, our kids, our grandkids. Not all the time. Again, we're not saying we walk around you know, like dressed in funeral clothes all the time. But we do need to give it some thought. In fact, I, later on in Ecclesiastes, we're going to get to a point where that is really stressed. Death has been discussed comprehensively by a few philosophers. A lot of times when they do deal with it, all they really deal with is they offer their views on the awareness of death. They really don't get beyond that. They may be able to conclude correctly what religion says about death, but again, you take away Christianity and the resurrection, there's just not much out there going on for the human being. 
and you can read what the philosophers say and read carefully, it's just a, it ends up being, no matter how well said, it's still well said gobbledygook. They've got no answers. The only knowledge we have regarding death itself is that it is inevitable. It is a universal event. We all know that we will die, and sooner or later, most of us must confront the reality of our own mortality. Facing one's own death is radically different from being concerned with the death of others. We think very differently about the death of others than we do our own death. That would be normal. My own death means the end of my possibilities. It is the total disintegration and the end of my world. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. That's just the truth. The fear of my own death comes from the fear of my extinction as a human being. And that can cause a great deal of anxiety. I am glad that the day that I die physically, I will not be extinct. I'm very happy for that. And that's only because I believe, and I believe it's true, is what the scripture says. One may be able to face other people's death, but may find it virtually impossible to come to terms with their own death. Peter Kreft says this, If you are typically typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. Basically, you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world do you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. The million mice are a million multiple diversions. That is what most people do. There's a rhinoceros in your living room, and you just try to look at the diversions. The permanent human problem is that death comes to us all. None of us is permanent. Nothing we do is permanent. We are all going to die. And again, it is important to ask, can you cope with looking death in the eye? If death does not inform the way you live, then death is something you are pretending doesn't exist. Once again, we know as Christians, the answer is Christ. We have to be able to explain how Christ is the answer. That when it comes to this issue that, yes, we are going to die, it, Christ deals with the answer of what this life is and what the next life is to be and how we can know that we are going to be in peace for the rest of our life. That Christ has conquered death. That the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ informs me, it tells me that there is life beyond the grave. That God is the one who gives life. He is also the one who takes life, but he is the giver of eternal life. Christ is the first fruits. Because he lives, I take assurance that I'm going to live that I'm going to live with him in eternity. Because he lives, I live. Because all things emanate from who Christ is. He is the foundation. If you think about it, remember that the law of gravity does not work because there's a law of gravity. The law of gravity does not work just because certain planets rotate at certain speeds. The law of gravity works because God exists. It is all dependent upon his existence. Life emanates from him. That is why when Jesus raises the dead, that's what that is to reveal to everyone, is that when he is there and that is his will, there is no death. Death is conquered. And he conquered himself. And so as we look at the credibility of the record of Scripture, as we look at the reliability of the truth that is here, 
then I know that when I have placed my faith in Christ, my eyes are wide open. I am seeing the gospel, and I am believing the gospel. There are no other answers out there that make sense, much less answers we can say dogmatically that are true. Yes, I do not see what is beyond the grave, except I do see it through the eyes of faith, meaning I'm not hoping somehow that it's true, but I see what the scripture says and I trust what God says. Therefore, I see it through the eyes of faith. I am believing God. And so my faith is on a very sure and firm foundation. In my human weakness, there will be times I may feel apprehension when thinking about my death. But there is no despair because I am secure in the arms of Christ. And when I look at my past and I regret things I have done, I am brought comfort because the scripture says that because I'm in Christ, there is now for you, Bob, no condemnation. And I'm grateful that my sins have been forgiven. And I will not stand in judgment before God for my sin because they have been judged in Christ. And so, even though there's even a bit of apprehension in standing before God because he sees right through me, There is great comfort because I know that I'll be dressed in the righteousness of Christ and that is what he's going to see. And based on that, I'll be welcomed into heaven. And so I would encourage you, all of us here, to think about these things and to discuss these things, especially if you are a believer and you have children or grandchildren that you are not sure they're not yet believers. We want to bring these things up. And you don't don't just like all of a sudden, you know, say to your, to your at, at dinner, pass the meatloaf, by the way, are you ready for dinner? That may not be the best context for that. But at the same time, don't just ignore it. There are times for wonderful, serious conversations. And you are equipped to have those conversations if you know Christ. If you know the gospel, then you are equipped. You may fumble and you may not say it the right way, but you're going to get to Christ and what he's on the cross. And that is the answer. And that may even help you to be able to flesh it out, to talk out with them. It'll help you and your faith in Christ. If you've not yet trusted Christ, I invite you to consider the claims of Christ and to believe today in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, I'm not the only one you can talk to. There are many here that would be more than happy to talk to you about the gospel of Christ. Because as believers, we are all believing the same thing, and we are all going to heaven for the same reasons, because we have faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful God we have, who has remedied the situation we find ourselves in by sending us Son Christ, because he loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word and your willingness to confront us with the most difficult aspects of life. And that is death. We thank you that there is an answer in Christ. We thank you that it has been answered in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that this, the simple aspects of the gospel are not simplistic, but they are profound in so many ways. And so, Father, for those of us who know you, we embrace more tightly the wonderful news of the gospel of Christ, and we thank you. And we know we can never thank you enough But we thank you, Father, for your love for us. And we do pray. For those who may not have yet trusted Christ, we pray that in your kindness and your grace that you will continue to be patient. You will draw them to yourself. You will open their eyes. You will reveal to them the truth of the word. 
We pray, Lord, that you would even put a spotlight on that feeling of angst or the feeling of apprehension when it comes to death, that they may think on these things seriously and consider the wonderful news of the gospel of Christ. I pray they would indeed examine what other religions and philosophies offer. I pray they would see with eyes that are open that there is a a dead end at every turn. And the only message of hope and truth is found in Christ. And so, Father, we thank you. And we do ask these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.